I'm Sharon Batters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You can find more hopeful stories at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Jesslyn Hutto. She is the author of Inheritance of Tears, Trusting the Lord of Life When Death Visits the Womb. And I'm so excited to introduce her to you. You know, the fear of miscarriage is one of the biggest fears of a pregnant woman. We have grandchildren getting married, but the mention of miscarriage takes me back to the moment I thought I was losing our first child. With each pregnancy, I worried. And then when a friend's baby died in utero at about five months into the pregnancy, my fears just exploded. Jesslyn knows not only this fear, but the reality of miscarriage and the accompanying grief. She offers a priceless gift to those women coming behind her who have experienced such deep loss. So Jesslyn, welcome. Thank you for having me. Jesslyn, before we talk about uh, miscarriage and, and some of the life lessons that you've learned and you want to offer to others, tell us a little bit about your life right now. My husband and I live in Conroe, Texas with our four children, where my husband pastors a church plant called King's Church. Jesslyn, in your book, Inheritance of Tears, you are so open about your story. Uh, it's so intimate and so painful, but, but could you share some of that with us right now? Yes. So in 2008, my husband and I had been married for two years and we had recently moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where he was attending seminary. And it was there that we became pregnant with our first baby. Though this pregnancy was a surprise, it was very, very welcomed. We couldn't have been more excited about the prospect of becoming parents. At the time, like most young, newly married, newly pregnant women, I was very naive in terms of what pregnancy would look like, much less about the possibility of miscarriage. In fact, I remember there was a woman at the church that we were members of who had recently miscarried. And in my ignorance, I imagined that her experience was extraordinary, certainly mm. that it was outside the norm. I <laughs> told myself I shouldn't worry about something like that happening to me because that's not what happens in normal pregnancies. Little did I know <laughs> the statistics tell a very, very different story. But I was, I was about to have those delusions crash down around me because in just a couple weeks, really, a couple days prior to my first scheduled prenatal appointment, I began to experience cramping and bleeding. And I went into the doctor's office for an ultrasound and we saw that baby and it did not have a heartbeat, mm. but due to the fact that it was so early in the pregnancy, it was hard to know if this meant that the baby was dead or if a heartbeat simply couldn't be picked up yet. So the baby was also measuring smaller than it should, though this could also have been a simple miscalculation in dates. And so we left the doctor knowing that it was a great possibility that we were miscarrying, but also with a sliver of hope that within a week we'd be able to go back and lo and behold, there would be a heartbeat on that screen and it would all have just been worrying for nothing. Mm. But of course, the next two days chipped away at that hope minute by minute as my body began in earnest to expel our child's body. Through much physical pain and many, many tears, I delivered our baby at home. And afterward, my husband and I sat in our living room with my mother who had come 
to be with us during the whole ordeal. And that was our first real trial as a married couple. We sat in our living room through tears and my husband led us in prayer and we just talked to God and we thanked him for that child. We thanked him for his goodness. We expressed our hatred of sin and the effects that sin has had on this world in the form of death. And we shared with the Lord our all of a sudden really big longing for Jesus to return and to make all things right again. Eternal realities took on a whole new dimension to us in that moment. A few days later, I had to have a medical operation called a DNC. And any woman who's had a miscarriage will probably be familiar with that term. But I had to have some of the leftover tissue from that pregnancy removed surgically after that, uh, which in and of itself is a a traumatic experience. Uh, you go in and come out just feeling empty <laughs> as though it's like a final seal on the loss of that child. So fast forward um, through two more pregnancies that ended happily with the births of two of our sons, Elliot and Hudson. And I was beginning to regain some confidence in my ability to carry children to full term. Though every pregnancy, of course, was tinged after that first miscarriage with a hint of fear. The fear had definitely gotten less and less as I experienced two healthy pregnancies. So I was 17 weeks into what was my, what was my fourth pregnancy and the most horrific experience of my life to date occurred <laughs> at that time. Uh, we had gone in for our regular scheduled prenatal appointment and it was the big one, <laughs> the most exciting appointment of your whole prenatal doctor's appointments. We were going to find out if it was a girl or a boy. And of course, we had two boys. So there was a huge part of me that was hoping for a little girl of course, we would have been happy with another little boy, but I was definitely excited to see if God was going to give us a little girl this time. <sighs> mm. One of the first things that you do when you go in for your prenatal appointment, you run through all the preliminary tests, and then you lay down on the table, and the nurse uses her little Doppler machine to look for the baby's heartbeat. Now, any woman who has ever miscarried, and probably any woman who has not, <laughs> knows that this is the most stressful experience <laughs> that you can imagine. Until the heartbeat of your baby is picked up, you feel it might be possible that your own heart has stopped. Mm -hmm. She searched and she searched. She asked the baby to kindly roll over and show itself, but a heartbeat was never picked up. Not mm -hmm. to be deterred though, she assured us that we would go straight to see the ultrasound technician and he would probably be able to get a better view of the baby because it was possible that the baby was simply not cooperating. So we walked numbly back through the waiting room, which was filled with expectant mothers, <laughs> and into the ultrasound room. It took the technician only moments to see our baby's adorably developed little body resting motionless in my womb without a heartbeat. And my husband was the only one who could bring himself to talk at that moment. He asked if the technician could tell us if it was a boy or a girl. And after moving the ultrasound wand around for a while to be able to get the right view, he was able to tell us that it was a little girl, yeah. a little girl who had stopped developing at about 
15 weeks. So she had been within me for a whole two weeks without, um, without being alive, which of course I had not even known. So we made the decision to induce labor since it seemed as though my body was in no hurry to naturally miscarry. We delivered her in a normal labor and delivery ward as we had our previous two children. And when we saw her, we were just amazed by her. She was so perfectly formed. She was only 15 weeks old, yet her tiny fingers were perfect. Her tiny toes were perfect. She had the sweetest little button nose. We were able to take her home with us after much fighting with the hospital mm -hmm. <laughs> and bury her on my parents' land under a tree where my husband and I had carved our initials when we were dating. Um, and we named her Anastasia, which means she will rise again. I know, Jesslyn, that your life as a, the wife of a church planter has to be incredibly busy. Um, lots of balls in the air. And yet somehow you found time to write this beautiful book, Inheritance of Tears. It deals with a really painful topic. So why were you willing to write on such a painful and intimate part of your life? When I wrote Inheritance of Tears, there wasn't a lot of material for women who were experiencing miscarriage. In fact, when I started blogging about miscarriage, probably about eight years ago, it was still a very taboo topic to talk about in public. And so it was something that women went through on their own. And even within women's ministries from the pulpit, there just were not a lot of opportunities for women to hear their particular struggle dealt with from a biblical standpoint. And so I was given a very strong theological foundation in my early years as a Christian through some incredible discipleship from women and men in my life who taught me the Word of God and helped instill in me the importance of knowing Scripture and knowing theology. And that knowledge gave me the tools that I needed to walk through my miscarriages victoriously. And that doesn't mean happily or without pain or grief, but it gave me the ability to see it from the Lord's perspective and not simply from my emotional perspective. And so while I have no intention to neglect the emotional aspect of miscarriage, I also wanted to help guide women through the Word of God and how the gospel applies to their struggle <laughs> through their loss of a child because miscarriage is extremely common <laughs> for women. And it wasn't something, you say that you were fearful of miscarriage, but honestly, with my first pregnancy, it was not something that I ever thought <laughs> would happen to me. I was burdened to pass on the theological understanding of suffering in the context of miscarriage to other women so that they might have that blessing of being able to know what the Word of God says about what they're going through. I really appreciate what you're saying. When our 16-year-old son Mark and his friend were in a fatal car accident, like you never thought about miscarriage, I never ever considered that we could lose one of our children in such a horrific way or in any way. And in time, it was my worldview that 
helped me not go insane with grief, Mm -hmm. you know, where I was able to finally run to the Lord with all of this and, and say, you have to sort this out because none of it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. So how important, I think you've kind of answered this question already, but a biblical worldview, not just for the miscarriage, but how does a biblical worldview prepare you for any kind of loss? Well, I would say that a biblical worldview is it's paramount for being prepared to walk through any trial because our worldview affects how we experience life. It is the means by which we interpret all of reality. So having a biblical worldview means that you believe that the Bible is true unconditionally, that it was given to us by God to help us understand not only him, but to understand ourselves and the world that we live in. So when you have a biblical filter like that, in your mind, it helps you to see everything that happens to you in the way that God sees it, um, because God has a completely different perspective than we do. And even tragedy looks different to the Lord than it does to us. So I can give you an example um, of a way that having a biblical worldview aided me. And it's just one of the many theological truths that had profound implications for my struggle through miscarriage. One of the questions that you immediately ask yourself, anyone who goes through any kind of suffering, when you have something tragic that happens to you, your first question is always, why? Why would this happen? Why would it happen to me? A woman who miscarries will always wonder, why did God allow my baby to die and not hers? Or did he purposefully cause my baby to die? Is he punishing me for something that I did? Was there something more that I could have done to prevent my miscarriage? That is a huge question that every woman who miscarries struggles with. There are millions of questions like this that will go through a woman's brain when she finds out that her baby has passed away. And there are a million possible answers that will come her way through her own life, through well-intentioned friends and family, through blogs or books, through doctors. Answers will be coming to her from every, every place. But the one place that she desperately needs to find answers in is the Word of God. A woman who has studied her Bible, who is equipped with some very basic theological truths found in its pages, Even, let's say, a woman who simply knows the gospel, has a firm grasp on the gospel, knows that at the moment sin entered into our world in Genesis 3, through Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against God, all of creation was impacted. From the soil of the earth to the womb of every single woman who has ever walked the earth since, all of creation was negatively affected or broken by the entrance of sin into our world, because with sin came death. And in Romans 8.22, it says that the whole of creation, that includes our bodies, have been crying out in birth pains, awaiting the day when Jesus would redeem it. All of creation has suffered as a result. And the fall, our bodies and our children's bodies, they're no exception. They too are fallen. They do not operate the way that they should have in a pre-fall world before sin entered. And so having a biblical framework for the brokenness of creation and therefore the brokenness of my own body 
and the body of any child that I conceived, it helped me to have a framework for my suffering that I was going through. It helped me to place my personal tragedy into the larger story of the gospel. And in that story, my miscarriage, the brokenness of my body and my child's body, they're not the end of the story. There is hope in the gospel story because God didn't just walk away from his broken creation, from what Adam and Eve messed up, but instead he sent his son to come into this world to wage war against death, the very brokenness that caused my child, my children to die within my womb is what Jesus came to fight against. He came to save us from our sins and to offer us an eternity in the new heavens and new earth where pain and suffering and babies dying in the womb will be non-existent. Mm -hmm. And so this is just one, one small theological concept that drastically alters the way that you look at a baby dying in the womb because you don't have to wonder what did I do to cause this? Now, there may have been something that a person purposefully did that would cause a miscarriage, but that is very, very rare. It is what doctors will tell you over and over again is that it is a common, common thing to happen. And there is nothing you could have done to prevent it from happening. It is a part of our brokenness as part of the broken creation. Mm -hmm. And so there is, there is relief found in that, but there's also hope knowing that God, God wants to redeem this tragedy that you are going through. And there's hope in the gospel because there is a future where this kind of suffering will not take place anymore. Jessalyn, you've talked about us living in a broken world and how that helps to kind of process and reconcile loss. And I really resonate with that because when our son Mark died, when I started thinking about uh, the truth, the reality of life, that we do live in a broken world, it was strangely com comforting to me to recognize that this is where we are and this is how uh, God looks at us and says, I'm going to redeem that pain. It, there's a better day coming. And that was really helpful to me. But I think some people might get a little confused about how we're supposed to respond to brokenness and say, okay, it's time to move on. You know, the, the, your grief is too deep or you need to get past the grieving. What, what do you think about that? I would say that lament, lamenting, the suffering that we go through when bad things happen is a very important aspect of our faith. It is a recognition that all is not yet as it should be. We all must understand whether we are the ones going through suffering or someone else close to us is going through suffering, that we live in what's called the in-between time right now. Theologians call it the already, not yet. Jesus has come and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He rose triumphant from the grave and descended into heaven where he awaits the day when he will return and permanently do away with all evil and all suffering. In the meantime, he has given us his church, his spirit to guard us and to keep us, to comfort us. And so we too are in this waiting time. <laughs> We're waiting for his return, waiting for him to put all things right again. But that waiting isn't 
all sunshine and roses. <laughs> it includes real here on this earth painful suffering as we continue to live our lives in this broken world. And scripture is so clear <laughs> with the fact that we should expect suffering, whether it is in the form of persecution for our faith or simply as a result of the sin in this world. So the suffering we experience often involves death and sorrow. God does not delight in these manifestations of the fall, though. He hates them. He hates sin and its effect. That is why God is holy. Sin is the complete opposite of the Lord. It is opposite to his nature. He is set apart from it. And so he, he hates sin and he hates what it has brought into our world. So if God himself hates death, if he abhors it, then we are right to abhor it as well and to properly mourn when it invades our lives the way that it does when somebody miscarries. Jesus is our ultimate example of what it means to righteously respond to death with lament. I love the story of when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead because it shows a side of Jesus that you don't see a lot of in the Gospels. You don't see him crying again until the Garden of Gethsemane, where we certainly see his brokenness over sin and death. But in this story where he goes to visit the tomb of Lazarus, where he knows, he actually knows that he is going to bring Lazarus back to life. There's no question about it. And yet the Bible tells us that he was deeply moved upon taking in the scene around him. We often interpret this deeply moved just as extreme sadness. He was, he was so sad. He was so sad to see his friends crying and seeing them mourning the death of Lazarus. But Bible commentators point out that in the original language, this phrase carries more of a sense of anger to it. There is a powerful indignation that the Lord of life Jesus, as he walks into that scene, feels upon seeing his friend's grave and his, his friend's sisters, some of his other friends, just broken and mourning and in pain and sorrow because of their loss. He hates death in this world. And the story shows him entering into our experience of what the effects of the fall are. Death angers our God with righteous indignation. It was never a part of his design for our world. And he understands its implications on our lives. He's God, he knows all things, but not only that, he has walked in our shoes. He has experienced intimately the brokenness of our world. So if the perfect son of God allowed himself to feel real sadness of heart, real mourning, real pain. Um, and again, we see, we see just this intimate look of someone struggling against sadness and fear in the Garden of Gethsemane without ever sinning. 
if the son of God allowed himself to feel those emotions, we too can grieve in a way that is biblical and that is good. Well, as I think about um, parents who, you know, one of the things that you say in your book is that uh, this kind of suffering is done in isolation, that there it's like, okay, you, you had a miscarriage, but, you know, God maybe saw something wrong with your baby, so he was protecting you. Um, you can have other children, that sort of thing. Why is it important, though, instead of saying things like that, to acknowledge the baby, to acknowledge this child, and uh, to acknowledge the need for parents to grieve? The thing that the person who has miscarried has to come to grips with is the fact that the people in your life, whether friends or family, um, they long to alleviate your pain <laughs> in any way they can. They want to help you to get past it. They want to help you to be happy again. And they wanna be able to say something. It is hard to be quiet <laughs> in the midst of someone suffering. I'm sure that any woman who has miscarried can understand or has been in, in the position where a friend is hurting and you just wish you had the right words to say. And so sometimes you say things that are not helpful. <laughs> Whether you have a biblical perspective or not, we are all susceptible to putting our foots in our mouths. Yeah. And unfortunately, many of the things that people say in this particular instance are the opposite of helpful, and they can even hurt a woman further. And so what I found is the most hurtful part of it is that the things said to the woman who has miscarried are things that lessen or shrug off the personhood of the child lost, as though that child didn't have enough worth to actually warrant properly grieving over. Mm. Um, their desire truly is to help you to stop grieving. <laughs> but the problem is that those words of, um, those, those trite words that do not actually get to your heart and what you're dealing with, they come from a lack of intimacy with the child. I like to call miscarriage a hidden grief or a loss invisible because to everyone else in the world, your loss is simply intangible. It is, it is not felt. It cannot be measured because your child hasn't had an impact on anyone but you. And maybe your close relatives, maybe the grandparents had gotten excited with you, but especially the earlier on in your pregnancy, people simply cannot empathize with you very easily. They can, and they should seek to. It can even be hard for a husband sometimes to sympathize to the extent that you would like because he has not experienced the baby in the same way you have. And because this is the case, I think it's our responsibility as women who have miscarried to show grace to those around us who struggle to understand the pain we're experiencing, while at the same time, acknowledging the very real personhood of our children so that our family and our friends can better appreciate the depth of loss that we feel. I feel as though the, the desire to help a mother get over the pregnancy quickly, though it comes from good motives, it actually does the opposite of what you're trying to do. 
we think that we are getting them to a happier place faster <laughs> and therefore that's good if we can just move them past it then all will be well again and that's for their best but in reality the attempts made to help a woman who has suffered miscarriage to get over it, as people say, they only deepen her pain and worsen it. Um, and this is because it reinforces the deep fear that she has in her heart that nobody cares about the child she has lost. It grieves her deeply to think that nobody cares about her child and that nobody will remember him or her. But if instead we seek to come alongside her in her grief, just as we would a mother who has lost a child outside the womb, treating her baby's death in the same way. We give her the freedom to deal with her sorrow properly. And in this way, we can allow parents of miscarried children to healthily process their emotions, to seek the Lord during their time of loss. Um, and that is what truly leads to true healing and even spiritual growth from those ashes. It is often in those deepest, darkest moments. If we allow ourselves to seek the Lord during those times, not with any strength, not with any force of will, but recognizing our weakness, those are the times when we have the deepest intimacy with the Lord. As everything else is stripped away, we experience him with heightened awareness. And suddenly the sufferings that he endured while he was on this earth mean so much more to us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when we begin, and we begin to understand his heart better as well. And if we, if we, if we push people past that, that time of brokenness, we actually rob them <laughs> of the opportunity that they have to be able to experience that, that love and comfort that only Jesus can give in that moment. Jesslyn, what are some of the practical ways that we can encourage a mother who has lost her child? And what are some of the things that people did for you? I have just been so blessed by my friends and family who have always just loved us so well. One of the ways that, I can give you a couple ways that people have blessed us. While I was delivering our daughter Anastasia in the hospital, one of my friends who I was not super close with at the time, we actually became much better friends after that experience because I saw in her a friend that didn't forget me. <laughs> and she lived in a, in a different city about four hours away. She texted me the entire day while I was in the hospital, like probably every 30 minutes with a, a new prayer that she was praying for me to the Lord for strength and for peace. Um, she was sending me scripture. She was just, she knew that I was going to need someone to keep, to keep me focused on higher things, on the Lord and on his goodness, and that it was going to be a scary experience and that I would need those words of truth spoken into my life. I have another friend who she remembered the day that we, she remembered the date that Anastasia was delivered on. And the next year, she, I was not, I was just so not expecting <laughs> this. Um, when we were at church, 
and she came up to me with a little gift bag and she said, I know that this is the week that you lost Anastasia last year and I made this for you. And it was just this really simple little wooden A that she had bought at a, at a hobby store, you know, and she had painted it and um, it was just, it was so sweet because it was a recognition of Anastasia's personhood, that she was a real person who we had lost. And, and she knew that it was going to be hard for me and that I would be thinking, nobody remembers mm. that I had this little girl, you know? And so the fact that she, she remembered that date was so huge. And so that's one of, that's a very practical thing that I encourage people to do. If you are close to someone who miscarries, jot down, jot down in your iPhone or whatever on your calendar, write the date that they miscarried, set a reminder for yourself for the next year. And also the day that they were, their due date that they were supposed to have that baby because when that day comes around if she's not pregnant again it is going to be a very very hard day because that's the day when she thought she was going to be holding that baby in her arms and loving on that child and going to have the privilege of being a mother to that child so simply remembering them on those days sending a card sending flowers Praying for them is the most practical thing you can do. And of course, Mother's Day is huge. If if that mom does not have other children, she is going to be dreading that day because it is just going to be a reminder of what she has lost. And so you can very practically be the person in her life who reminds her, you were a mother. You are a mother. <laughs> I want to honor you um, and the sacrifice you made of carrying that child and the suffering that you went through, I want to recognize that. And so for a husband, don't forget to get your wife flowers <laughs> on that day. But also anyone else, get her flowers, get her a card, just like you would any other mother. Just because her child isn't here on this earth doesn't mean that she doesn't have those same emotions. Sit with her at church on Mother's Day. Encourage her to stand if if your church recognizes mothers. Mm. Um, it's going to be very, very hard for her. But knowing that other people view her as a mom is huge. Mm. One of the things that I discovered in our grief journey was encouragement can be difficult for the encourager to figure out what do I say, what do I do, how do I help, but it is also extremely simple, as simple as hugging a grieving person and just whispering mm -hmm. in their ear, I'm so sorry. That's, that's sometimes that's all you need as an acknowledgement um, on Mother's Day to yes, someone yes. just hug you and say, I love you. And I'm, I'm so glad you came to church today. I know this is hard for you. Yes. Just knowing that someone is acknowledging your pain. So another, uh, something else that helped us was the phrase lean into the pain, which you kind mm -hmm. of touched on mm -hmm. with, um, the need to lament, the need to grieve and for others to say it's appropriate for you to yes. grieve. I, I think about that scripture uh, about there was weeping in Rama and mm -hmm. the mothers refused to be comforted and mm -hmm. I loved that <laughs> our son I loved reading that because I thought that's normal uh, mm -hmm. that's the normal thing that no this is a time to grieve this is not a time to 
uh, be told, get over it. You can yes. have children, you can move on. Yes. Jocelyn, as we wrap up our time together, I think about a grieving mother who is listening. Uh, she's desperate for hope and she hears the comfort that you have received from a relationship with Christ, but she doesn't understand what you mean when you talk about that relationship with Jesus. Can you share with her how to experience that personal intimacy with Jesus that you have been talking about? Often we think that Christianity or religion in general is for the victorious. It's for people who have it all together and are good enough. But our Savior <laughs> is the God of the weak. And I love <laughs> when he says in the Gospels, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are weary, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and he is lowly in heart, and he will give you rest for your soul. He knows the depth of sorrow that you are experiencing. It is not outside of his knowledge. He knows all things. He knows your heart better than you do, and he longs to give you true and lasting peace. The reason that Jesus came into this world was to rescue you from your sin. Each of us are born into this world with a sin problem. And we, by our very natures, live our lives in rebellion against our Creator and Heavenly Father. We do not follow His ways, but instead we follow our own passions and our own desires. We are sinners, and because of that, our lives are often filled with trials and difficulties. While your miscarriage is not necessarily a result of any specific sin that you have committed, the only reason that it was a possibility in this world for you to miscarry is because sin is a part of our world. Sin has brought death. And now <laughs> you have experienced that reality within your very womb. The only reason that death abhors is abhorrent to you <laughs> is because you were made for something else. Humanity was created for something else. Sin was, sin has brought death, but that is not what we were made for. So this is why Jesus came. God did not want his children to perish under the weight of sin. He sent his son to live a perfect, sinless life for you. He then died a sinner's death that he did not deserve on a cross, accepted all of the wrath of God for every sin that you have ever committed and paid the penalty for your sins so that you would not have to, so that none of the wrath that is reserved for sin would go on you. He paid the penalty for every single one of your sins. And then three days later, his father raised him from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient and powerful enough to save even the worst of sinners. And he did all of this so that you could be forgiven for all of your sins and so that one day you could experience a world that is completely devoid of any suffering, any pain, and any death. The experience of miscarriage is something that God never intended to be a part of our world when he created it. Death was never part of his design, but because of sin, it is now a daily reality in our race. Jesus came 
to wage war against that and to defeat it once and for all and to offer you real and lasting hope. One of my favorite passages, which took on a completely new meaning <laughs> to me after our miscarriages, um, one of my favorite passages in scripture is in Revelation 21, where the apostle John describes a vision that God has given him of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the place where all of those who have placed their trust in Jesus will one day spend their eternity. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is what it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Jesus will dwell with us and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, Jesus himself, the God of the universe, the one who holds up all of the planets in the palm of his hand, keeping them moving perfectly so that we don't all splatter into each other. He is going to wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what God beckons you to put your faith in, to put your faith in this God who is holy and perfect and yet full of love and compassion for you in your time of sorrow. He loves you, He died for you, and He offers eternal life to you freely. The Bible says that anyone who believes in Jesus, that he is God and that he was raised from the dead, that they will be saved from their sins. And so I would encourage you from the depths of my heart to put your trust in him now. Your miscarriage is not the end of your story because death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end that this world is going to experience, it is going to be remade. This might be the beginning of a new life for you, a life that lives in real and joyful communion with the God of the universe, the God who came to earth to rescue you from sin. And you can have that. It is a free gift from the Lord. So don't let this time of deep loss go without coming to terms with whether or not you know your place in the story that God began at creation and that he is going to end when Jesus returns and creates a new and perfect world where there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more sadness. Jesslyn, thank you so much. And thank you um, for listening. I pray that what you have heard today is an encouragement to you. And if you want to know more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, please contact us at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. I'm Sharon Betters, and you have been listening to a conversation with Jesslyn Hutto, who wrote Inheritance of Tears, Trusting the Lord When Death Visits the Womb. You can connect with Jesslyn at jhutto.com, where you'll find her blog, Living in the Light, and more help and hope for everyday life. 
We love hearing how the Lord is touching lives through the resources at markinc.org, produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Just go to our website and follow the links for contacting us. And when you're there, browse our site where you're going to find hundreds of free resources designed to offer help and hope. Thank you so much for listening.